0: Well, amen, and today um, we're going to continue, after a couple of weeks off, continue our study on the atonement. In our last class, Desmond uh, talked about the cause of the atonement, uh, that being the love and the justice of God. Also, the necessity of the atonement, that apart from the atonement made by Christ, No person could be saved. The atonement was absolutely necessary for the accomplishment of redemption. And then he spent time discussing the nature of the atonement, specifically addressing the active and passive obedience of Christ. His active obedience being that wherein he always obeyed and perfectly pleased the Father, making him both a perfect representative for his people, but also a holy and acceptable sacrifice. And then his passive obedience, or his suffering for us and in our place, is something that Jesus endured throughout his life. There was nothing for which he rightly deserved to suffer. Thus, everything that he suffered was in a representative or substitutionary capacity. And of course, this culminated in his suffering on the cross. This involved the unimaginable pain that he endured, the physical pain, the pain of bearing sin, the abandonment of his disciples, and the sense of forsakenness from his father, and the reality of bearing the wrath of God for sin. So those are the things that uh, were covered in the last class. And today we're going to talk briefly about Christ's death as penal substitution. And then we'll look at some other elements of Christ's atonement and what he accomplished, such as propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, and some others. And we'll talk briefly also about the extent of the atonement. So first, uh, on Christ's death as penal substitution. The view of Christ's death that we've presented in this class uh, and as the Bible presents it is referred to as penal substitution. The word penal refers to a penalty. And Christ's death was penal in that he bore a penalty when he died. That penalty was suffering the wrath of God for sin. His death was also a substitution in that he was a substitute for us when he died. This has been the orthodox understanding of the atonement held by evangelical theologians, in contrast to other views uh, that attempt to explain the atonement apart from the idea of the wrath of God or of the payment of a penalty for sin. And we'll look at uh, some of those other views uh, in a moment. Um, But uh, this view of penal substitution um, is also called the theory of uh, vicarious atonement. A vicar is someone who stands in the place of another or who represents another. And Christ's death was therefore vicarious because he stood in our place and represented and made atonement for us. As our representative, he took the penalty that we deserve. In the last couple of decades, uh, there have been a number of prominent evangelical theologians who have denied this doctrine. Um, And so it's very important that we understand the vicarious nature of Christ's atoning death that we don't be misled on this. It's a, it's a central truth a cent- of central importance to us. Now, I want to uh, talk about um, some New Testament terms that describe different aspects of the atonement. So we also need to understand that the death of Christ is not presented in the Bible from just one perspective in terms of what it accomplished. The atoning work of Christ is a complex event that has several effects on us. Uh, It can therefore be viewed from several different aspects. And the New Testament uses different words, different ideas and concepts to describe these. And we're going to examine four of the more important terms. These four terms show how Christ's death met the four needs that we have given our condition, our plight as sinners. And the first is that we deserve to die as the penalty for sin. God told Adam and Eve in the garden that if they sinned by transgressing the one prohibition that he gave them, um, that they would surely die. And that is The penalty for sin the wages of sin is death and so we deserve to die as the penalty for sin secondly we deserve to bear god's wrath against sin god is just and he must punish wickedness and evil and in our sin we deserve to bear his wrath against that sin third we are separated from god by our sin. God is holy and separated from all evil. And as people corrupted by sin, uh, we are thereby separated from God. We can't stand in a proper relationship to Him. And then fourth, we are in bondage to sin and Satan. And so, we have need of being freed and released from that bondage. So these four needs are met by Christ's death in the following ways. And you can see on your sheets there, the first is uh, sacrifice. The scriptures speak of Christ's death as that of sacrifice. To pay the penalty of death that we deserved because of our sins. Christ died as a sacrifice for us in our place. Uh, look with me, uh, if you will, at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. Hebrews 9 24 reads for Christ entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. By his sacrifice, Christ has suffered death once for all that those who trust in him can have their sin put away and will not have to bear the just penalty that they deserve. Now the second uh, term is propitiation. To remove us from the wrath of God that we deserve, Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. This means that he bore the full wrath of God in our place, and he perfectly satisfied divine justice against our sin. And he did this out of his perfect love for his people, as we're told in 1 John four ten, where it says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, the next thing that Christ's atonement accomplished for us is reconciliation. Apart from Christ, all people are at enmity with God. As it says in Colossians 121, we are alienated and we're hostile or we're enemies in our minds doing evil deeds. <clears throat> to overcome our alienation, our separation and enmity with God we needed someone to provide reconciliation and thereby bring us back into fellowship with God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians five, eighteen to 19 speaking of God's work through Christ, says all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. So Christ provides this reconciliation through his death on the cross, and he has called us, who have been reconciled, to now carry this message of reconciliation to those who, who are still at enmity with God. We are servants of this gospel. We are ministers of reconciliation. And then fourthly, redemption. Because we as sinners are in bondage to sin and Satan, we need someone to provide redemption and thereby redeem us out of that bondage. And when we speak of redemption, uh, the idea of ransom comes into view here. A ransom is the price paid to redeem someone from bondage or captivity. Jesus said of himself in Mark 10:45, For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many if we ask to whom this ransom was paid, we realize that this human analogy of a ransom payment doesn't uh, fit the atonement um, in perfect detail. Uh, Though we were in bondage to Satan, there was no ransom paid to Satan. And though we were in bondage to sin, there was no ransom paid to sin. Um, for neither sin nor Satan has a demand upon us such that a payment would be required. Um, It could not demand such a payment, um, and nor was Satan the one whose holiness was offended by sin and who required a penalty to be paid. As we saw earlier, the penalty for sin was paid by Christ and received and accepted by God the Father. But we shouldn't think that a ransom was paid to God the Father because uh, it was not he who held us in bondage, but Satan and our own sins. So therefore, at this point, at least in the analogy, we can't press this idea of a ransom into every detail. But the sufficient and crucial part of it is to know that a price was paid, the death of Christ, and the result was that we were redeemed and set free from that bondage. A couple of texts which clearly say this are Matthew 20, 28, where, again, similar to what we just heard, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then also in First Peter 1, 18 and 19, where it says, knowing that you were ransomed from, a, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, as we said, we were held in bondage to sin and to Satan, and the redemption that is accomplished by Christ deals with both aspects of this bondage. We were redeemed from bondage to Satan because it says in 1 John 5:19 that the whole world is in the power of the evil one. And when Christ came he died as it says in Hebrews 2:15 to deliver all those who through their fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage in fact in Colossians 1:13 we're told that God the Father has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son now, as for the deliverance from bondage to sin, Jesus says in John 8, 34 and following that everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but that he is able to set us free and make us free indeed. And in Romans 6, 11, and 14, Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive God in Christ Jesus in verse 14 for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace we have been delivered from bondage to the guilt of sin and from bondage to its ruling power in our lives and this is accomplished through the redemptive work of Christ who as it says in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Uh, Now let's uh, consider several other views of the atonement. In contrast to the penal substitution view of the atonement, There are several other views that have been advocated in the history of the church. And the first we'll talk about is the ransom to Satan theory, which we alluded to a moment ago. Uh, This view was held by the church father Origen, who lived between 185 and 254 A.D. Uh, He was a theologian from Alexandria originally and later from Caesarea. And also, some after him uh, held to it um, in in the early history of the church. According to this view, the ransom Christ paid to redeem us was paid to Satan, in whose kingdom all people were by virtue of their sin. This theory, though, finds no direct confirmation in scripture, and it has few supporters in the history of the church. falsely thinks of Satan, rather than God, as the one who required that a payment be made for sin, and thus it completely neglects the demands of God's justice with respect to sin. This view views Satan as having much more power than he actually does, namely power to demand what he wants from God, rather than as one who has been cast down from heaven and has no right to demand anything of God. Nowhere does scripture say that we as sinners owe anything to Satan, but it repeatedly says that God requires a payment for our sins. This view also fails to deal with the texts that speak of Christ's death as a propitiation which is offered to God the Father for our sins, or with the fact that this sacrifice was accepted as a satisfactory and sufficient payment for our sins Uh, the next view is the moral influence theory which was first advocated by peter abelard in uh the late uh 12th century he lived from 1079 to 1142 Uh, he was a french theologian the moral influence theory of the atonement holds that god did not require the payment of a penalty for sin but that christ's death was simply a way in which god showed how much he loved human beings by identifying with their sufferings even to the point of death christ's death therefore becomes a great teaching example and that shows God's love for us and draws us, draws out of us that is a grateful response so that in loving him we are thereby forgiven. So Christ showed his love by dying, it didn't actually accomplish anything except to kind of inspire um, a response of love from his people. And in that response of love, they're forgiven. The great difficulty with this viewpoint is that it is contrary to so many passages of Scripture that speak of Christ dying for sin, bearing our sin, or dying as a propitiation. Moreover, it robs the atonement. It robs the atonement of its objective character because it holds that the atonement had no effect on God himself. That is, it didn't propitiate him. Finally, it has no way of dealing with our actual guilt. If Christ did not die to pay for our sins, then we have no right to trust him for the forgiveness of sins. Our sin, in that case, would not have been taken care of. The next view is the example theory. The example theory of the atonement (coughs) was taught by the Socinians, (coughs) who were the followers followers of Faustus Socinus, who lived from 1539 to 1604. He was an Italian theologian who uh, later settled in Poland in 1578 And uh, his teaching really caught on and attracted a wide following. The example theory, like the moral influence theory, also denies that God's justice requires payment for sin. It says that Christ's death simply provides us with an example of how we should trust and obey God perfectly, even if that trust and obedience leads to a horrible death. Whereas the moral influence theory says that Christ's death teaches us how much God loved us, the example theory says that Christ's death teaches us how we should live and love one another. The example theory says, I'm sorry, support for this view Um, is sought in 1 Peter 2, where it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So based on a text like that, they deduce that uh, Christ's suffering was merely an example that we should follow. Now, while it is true that Christ is an example, um, uh, for us in all things, even in his death, the question is whether this fact is the complete explanation of the atonement. The example theory fails to account for the many scriptures that focus on, again, Christ's death as payment for sin, the fact that he bore our sins, that he was a propitiation for our sins. These considerations alone mean that the theory is is not biblical, must be rejected. Moreover, this view really ends up arguing that man can save himself by following Christ's example and by trusting and obeying God just as Christ did. Thus it fails to show how the guilt of our sin can be removed because it does not hold that Christ actually paid the penalty for our sins or made provision for our guilt when he died. Now the uh, last theory I want to talk about here is the governmental theory. The governmental theory of the atonement was first taught by the Dutch theologian and jurist Hugo Gratius. Who lived from 1583 to 1645. And this theory holds that God did not actually have to require payment for sin. But since he was God... Or, since he was the omnipotent God, he could have set aside that requirement and simply forgiven sins without any payment of a penalty. <clears throat> what then was the purpose of Christ's death? It was God's demonstration of the fact that his laws had been broken and that he is a moral lawgiver and governor of the universe and that some kind of penalty would be required whenever his laws were broken. Thus, Christ did not exactly pay the penalty for the actual sins of any people, but simply suffered to show that when God's laws are broken, there must be some penalty paid. So, because God sets the laws and he's a just judge, he's going to bring some penalty he decided, well, this is the way I'll bring the penalty. I'll, I'll uh, have Christ die for the penalty. <clears throat> and um, it was not in itself the, the actual consequence of sin and then the actual penalty for sin. It was just how God, in his omni- uh, omnipotence, um, decided he would do it to demonstrate that, he's gonna, that, that, that if you sin, you're going to have to pay a penalty. <clears throat> now, um, obviously, all of these views have, have severe problems with them. The, the central aspect of it being that there is no substitutionary sacrificial death. Our actual sins, by which we are truly guilty before God, are not dealt with with any of these views Um, and so they they fail to meet the biblical criteria. Now I want to talk briefly now um, on the extent of the atonement. One of the differences between Reformed theologians and other Protestant and Catholic theologians has been the question of the extent Of the atonement the question may be put this way when Christ died on the cross did he pay for the sins of the entire human race or only for the sins of those whom he knew would ultimately be saved non-reformed people argue that the gospel offer in Scripture is repeatedly made to all people And for this offer to be genuine, the payment for sins must have already been made and must be actually available to all people. So if if the gospel offer is made to all people, then therefore Christ must have died for all people is the argument. They also say that if the people whose sins Christ paid for are limited, that is the number of those people are limited, then the free offer of the gospel also is limited and the offer of the gospel cannot be made to all mankind without exception. So if Christ didn't die for everyone, you can't can't offer the gospel to everyone. Those are the arguments. On the other hand, reformed people argue that if Christ's death actually paid for the sins of every person who ever lived then there is no penalty left for anyone to pay. And it necessarily follows that all people will be saved. So there's an absolute universalism here. Uh, Everybody would be saved without exception. For God could not condemn to eternal punishment anyone whose sins had already been paid for. The reason for this is because that would be demanding a double payment and thereby God would be seen as unjust. Now, in answer to the objection that this view compromises the free offer of the gospel to every person, the Reformed position answers that we do not know who the elect are and who will come to trust in Christ, for only God can know that. As far as we're concerned, the free offer of the gospel is to be made to everyone without exception, one, because God calls us to that, but in this case because that is the only means by which anyone will be saved. We also know that everyone who repents and believes in Christ will be saved, so all are called to repentance, as it says in Acts 17.30. The fact that God foreknew those whom he would save and that he accepted Christ's death as payment for their sins only does not inhibit the free offer of the gospel, since only God knows who will respond until they actually hear and respond, then others can know. But we proclaim the gospel for, the, for, for all people, um, and only in their response do we know if they uh, indeed have had their sins paid for by Christ as they trust in him. Grudem says this, that we do not know who will respond no more constitutes a reason for not offering the gospel to all than not knowing the extent of the harvest prevents the farmer from sowing seeds in his field. So I thought that was a helpful analogy, just because we don't know who will respond is no more hindrance to us bringing the gospel to all than the farmer who doesn't know what his ultimate harvest will be would thereby not sow his seed. Now Now, finally, the reformed position argues that God's purposes in redemption are agreed upon within the Trinity and they are certainly accomplished. There is no disunity in the Trinity, essentially, or in the purposes and aims of redemption. Those whom God planned to save are the same people for whom Christ also came to die. And to those same people, the Holy Spirit will certainly apply the benefits of Christ's redemptive work, raising them to life and granting them faith, uniting them to Christ to share in all his benefits. What God the Father purposed, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreed to and perfectly carried out. Now, um, we'll look at several passages which speak of the fact that uh, Christ died for his people. For instance, uh, in John 10 verse 11 says the good shepherd Jesus saying this the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and then in verse 15 he says i lay down my life for the sheep paul speaks of the church of god which he obtained with the blood of his own son in acts 20:28 20, so it is the church which is purchased by the blood of Christ he also says um, he who did not spare his own son but gladly gave him up for us all will he not also give us all things actually let me have you look at um, Romans chapter 8 we'll look at a few verses here Romans 8 starting in verse 32 <clears throat> Again yeah, it says, speaking of the f- God the Father, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? So here it says, well he gave him up for us all, but we have to understand what is intended in this passage. This passage indicates a connection between God's purpose in giving up his son for us all and giving us all things that pertain to salvation as well in the next sentence paul clearly limits the application of this to those who will be saved because he says who will bring any charge against god's elect so that's to whom all things are given Those are the ones for whom Christ was given. And then in the next verse, it mentions Christ's death as a reason why no one can bring a charge against the elect. Okay, so all those for whom Christ was given up, all of those for whom Christ was given up, are those who receive the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Only those for whom Christ died, his elect, (laughs) have immunity against every charge that might be brought. Christ died for them, case closed. One more uh, reference um, on this point in Ephesians 5.25. There Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It is the church and none other for whom Christ laid down his life. He has not given himself for another. Moreover, Christ during his earthly ministry uh, is aware of, gr- of a group of people whom the Father has distinctly given to him. In John six thirty-seven to 39 it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And him who comes to me, I will not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. There is one group spoken here. Those given by the Father to the Son, those who come to the Son, and this is coextensive. All that are given come. Of those who come, none will be cast out, none will be lost, and all will be raised up at the last day by Christ, the one who died for them. <clears throat> he did not die for a bunch of others who were not given, and who will never come, and who will not be raised to life. He also says in John 17, verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Then he goes on to say, he goes on from this specific reference to the disciples to say, I do not pray for these only, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through Their word, and that's in verse 20. So he doesn't pray for the world. He prays for his disciples in that day and for all those who will believe throughout the history of the church. He made this clear distinction the priest intercedes only for those for whom the sacrifice is offered, he prays for those for whom he died. Finally, uh, some passages speak of a definite transaction between the Father and the Son when Christ died. A transaction that had specific reference for those who would believe. For example, Paul says in Romans 5 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He adds, for if while we were enemies we were for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life this reconciliation to God occurred with respect to the specific people who would be saved and it occurred while we were enemies similarly Paul says For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, for those who would be made the righteousness of God, he made him to be sin. So he, he died bearing sin only for those who would ultimately receive the gift of his righteousness and it also says uh, in galatians 3 13 christ redeemed us from the curse by having become a curse for us he didn't become a curse suffering on the cross for people who will suffer eternally in hell further support uh, for the reformed view is found in the consideration that all the blessings of salvation, including faith, repentance, and all the works of the Holy Spirit in applying redemption, were also secured by Christ's redemptive works specifically for his people. <clears throat> those for whom he earned forgiveness have also have had those other benefits earned for them. Um, couple of scriptures uh, dealing with this. Philippians 1 29. For it has been granted or given to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. So Paul's indicating here that belief or faith has been granted, given to us. Ephesians 1 verses three and four says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before for the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him and uh, then also in ephesians 2 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not your own doing it is the gift of god so all of salvation including faith is the gift of god that comes to us because of christ's sacrifice now the reformed view as i've referred to it um, it's also known as limited atonement However, um, a lot of people who hold this position don't prefer that term um, because it can easily be misunderstood as if the view somehow held that Christ's atoning work had some deficiency in it um, so a lot of people don't prefer limited atonement of course that comes from the you know across the tulip and uh, but uh, the term that is sometimes preferred to this is particular redemption since uh, this view holds it Christ died for a particular people, specifically those who would be saved, who he came to redeem, that he foreknew each one of them individually uh, and had them individually in mind in his atoning work. So, limited atonement, particular redemption, um, really mean the same thing. Um, And that is... uh, what I want to say in the time we have in terms of the extent of the atonement, there's a lot more that could be said. Um, but in closing, I want to uh, just kind of wrap up the section of, of the class that we've been dealing with. Um, we, we can understand, we, we talked um, earlier on in the class about the person of Christ, his humanity, and His deity, and the incarnation, and these things. And when, you, when we talk about Christology as a whole, we can sum it up really in talking about the person and the work of Christ. So we've talked about the person of Christ. And then, um, since our last class and then today, we've been talking about the work of Christ. So we're in that, that portion of, of uh, the subject of Christology. Um, but when we talk about the work of Christ we can talk about it also sort of in two stages talk about Christ's humiliation and his exaltation okay and so um, as we've talked about uh, these things up to this point we've really talked about Christ and his humiliation which which begins with um, his uh, his birth ultimately and includes all of his life and his work on earth in redemption and uh, laying down his life. Now next week Des is going to pick up uh, from here and talk about the resurrection of Christ and there we begin talking about his exaltation. Um, So I just put this uh, one catechism question here at the, the bottom of the notes just to kind of again bring these ideas together of Christ's humiliation it says wherein did Christ's humiliation consist and the answer is Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law undergoing the miseries of this life the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So when we think of, of Christ's work in his active and passive obedience, um, we're thinking of Christ's humiliation and it encompasses all of, all of those things listed here uh, and with those scripture references. Um, and this all Christ did for us, all of the humiliation, um, all of his condescension for our salvation um, is just that for us, for our salvation, and for that um, we we should be most grateful and we should also um, seek in response to to live lives um, where we are ourselves willing to humble ourselves and be servants to others, to one another, to the gospel, as we seek to bring this message um, to those who who are still in darkness. So with that, let's go ahead and close out in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the giving of your Son we know apart from him, we have no hope. Apart from him, we have no life. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We ask, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit and with a deeper understanding of this gospel, that you would cause us to seek you with all of our hearts, that we would, as Paul Said, consider our lives worth nothing except that we may finish the race you've called us to and accomplish the work you've called us to, even as your Son perfectly accomplished his work for our salvation. We pray, God, that as we uh, now join the rest of the body here for worship, that you would be pleased with our thoughts, and our words, and our praises, and our interaction, and that in all of these things, you would be glorified, and that by your spirit, you would strengthen us, that you would sanctify us, and that you would fill us with joy in your presence. We pray in Christ's name, amen.